0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Sojourn East. In Acts 20.35, Jesus said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. For this four-week vision series at Sojourn East, we will be exploring what Jesus' way of giving looks like. We're calling this series, Serve Somebody. Each week we will look at a different aspect of the life of Christian service both inside and outside the church. It's time for our scripture reading, so if you are able, would you join me in standing as we read from God's Word. Today's scripture comes from John 13, 1 through 17. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for Him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: You know, when I was growing up um, in my family, we played a lot of word games. And we did the same with our kids when we were growing up. So a lot of boggle and taboo and catchphrase and scategories and password and scrabble fact, my wife and I, when we were younger, we were even members of the National Scrabble Association. Yes, we were nerds, I admit it. So I've always been fascinated with words, and I love finding just the right word to describe something. So here's a little word-based thought experiment for you this morning. If you had to sum up the whole message of the Bible or of Christianity in one word or one short phrase, what would you offer? You had to summarize the whole thing in one word or one phrase. And it's, it's actually a tough one because there are a lot of good options, a lot of good candidates for an answer. For example, you could just say God or maybe the glory of God or maybe grace or grace through faith or Jesus or the kingdom of God or forgiveness of sin, and you could probably come up with a bunch of others as well. I think those are all really good one-word or short summaries of the message of the Bible and Christianity, but let me ask you this. If I were to give you a few minutes and think about that, how many of us would say and offer as our one-word answer, how many of us would say love? Maybe some of us would. Maybe some people might answer that. But I'm sure that for a lot of us, love is probably not actually the first word or maybe even not very high on the list of all the words we might come up with to summarize the whole message of the Bible. Why? Well, I'm afraid for many of us, especially in our particular tradition of Christianity, love doesn't often play a very central role in how we talk because I think some of us are kind of afraid of describing the Bible as all about love, because love for many people seems maybe a little too loosey-goosey, too generic, too meaningless. After all, love is a word we use in all kinds of romantic songs and romantic comedies, and it's often fickle, it's short-lived, it's often unfaithful. And as much as we all love the Beatles, many of us, I think, would be hesitant to use John Lennon as our great theologian. That is, that all we need is love. I think most of us would be hesitant to do that. On the other hand, some of us may not be inclined to say the Bible summed up as love because we feel like maybe it's too simple. It's, it's too childish, I mean, we learned back in Sunday school, if you grew up in church, that God is love, and maybe that sounds too quaint. Several years ago, I was uh, ministering in an old church, a really old church, and I, for some reason, I was digging around in one of the Sunday school rooms. That sounds weird. I wasn't very—I was looking for something, and I ran across this poster. This poster from. I don't know when it was from, probably the 50s or something in an old Sunday school room. And it had these little graphics. It was a kid's poster. And the the lines were: God gives us sunshine. And this shows a picture of the sun. God gives us grass. Shows a picture of the grass. God gives us cows. God gives us milk. God gives us butter. Thank you, God, for loving us. Now, certainly the American Dairy Council is thrilled uh, with this line of reasoning and this high point, this high mark that butter is the ultimate example of God's love. And you know what? I love butter as much as the Knicks guy, but I'm afraid maybe that kind of way of talking about God's love, which is not all wrong, but maybe that's still in you maybe from childhood and you think, yeah, God's love, that's kind of for kids. Silly rabbit, John three sixteen is for kids, we might think. Regardless of what you think about the idea of love, I'm going to suggest to you today that according to Jesus, this is a great way to summarize the entirety of the Bible. And today, as we conclude our series that we're working on, Serve Somebody, I want us to land with love. And the text that Lindsay read for us, John 13, it's a very famous story, but I wonder whether we've realized how central this story really is to what it means to be a Christian, to live as a disciple of Jesus. And we're gonna see that this famous story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet has a lot more going on than we might first see. So if you have a Bible, you can turn there with us. We'll put some of the verses on the screen as well, but it's great on your phone or if you have a Bible to to follow along with. It makes it easier to understand and, and look at the text together. So in looking at this great story of John 13, we're actually jumping right into the middle of John's gospel. So of course there's 12 chapters that happened before and several that happened afterwards. And really what happens in John 13 to 17, it's the last night of Jesus' earthly life with his disciples. He's about to be arrested and tried and nailed to a piece of wood and to die. And John 13 to 17, they're really the turning point of the book. Because in John 1 to 12, we have, we've seen Jesus do amazing miracles and teach all these things. And he's boldly declared to be the son of God who's come to the world to change everything. And in chapter 18 and following, we'll see that he's going to pay the consequences for being the son of God incarnate. He's going to be opposed by his enemies. So what you have in chapters 13 to 17 is this, this little respite. It's like everything else grays out for a minute. And you have this one evening together where Jesus is with his beloved friends, his disciples, and they, they laugh and they cry and they, they eat and they drink together and they talk and they pray. And it's like everything else is grayed out and there's this little spotlight that's shown on John 13 to 17. And what's about to happen afterwards is very dark and it makes what happens there even lighter. So let's look at the story, picking it up in John 13, beginning verse 1. So it says... It was just before the Passover festival, and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, that he had come from God and was returning to God. So this set up to the story. We, we learned that we're here at the Jewish festival of the Passover, a very, very important holiday where the Jewish people to this day still commemorate what had happened at the Exodus where God's judgment passed over those who had faith in him. Jesus knows, it says, that he's returning to the Father God. He's about to leave the world because the people that are opposed to him are going to kill him. And most importantly, we see that word love. Is emphasized, and this is going to be the big theme all through John 13 to 17. And then look at what happens in the story. Look pick it up at verse 4. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a the towel that was wrapped around him. So here we are. We're at a supper banquet, and Jesus does something that actually was very common. In the day, but was also completely unexpected. The common part was that in the ancient world, you needed to regularly wash your feet. Foot washing wasn't just some some symbolic thing like somebody might do today. It was actually a very common and everyday occurrence, and it needed to be because in those days, people wore either no shoes very often or some kind of open kind of shoes. They generally didn't wear what we would call socks and definitely never socks with sandals, not like your weird uncle might, right? But most importantly, everyone walked everywhere and it was filthy, dusty roads, lots of animals, which means lots of animal remains and horrible sanitation. Even the best parts of ancient Jerusalem had flowing sewage all the time. And so, when you went into somebody's house to eat, it was really, really important that you cleaned off your feet. So, that part isn't unexpected in this story. What's unexpected is who is doing the foot washing. You see, normal hospitality was that when you came into somebody's house, they would provide a basin for you to clean your feet with, or very often, the the very lowest servant in the house would be given this task, this very unpleasant job of washing everybody's feet. But now, to everyone's surprise and embarrassment, Jesus, who is their leader, their teacher, the one who's taught them things that they had never understood before, never imagined, the Lord that they have given up everything to follow, the one they saw raise Lazarus from the dead, the one who, when he speaks, he confounds the wisdom of the wisest people, the one who has multiplied fish and bread and walked on water and healed a man born blind, he gets up from the feast and without a word, puts aside his outer garments and takes on the form of the lowest servant you can imagine and begins washing everyone's feet. It's awkward. It would be like if someone during the sermon came up here untied my shoes and started washing my feet. We'd say, is this a joke? Don't, Don't get any ideas. This is weird and embarrassing, but infinitely more because I'm obviously not your Lord, King, and Savior who's done all these miracles. This is an entirely awkward and unexpected and really speechless creating situation for the disciples. Now, It might be helpful to get in our mind's eye a little bit more what this dinner would have looked like like I know if you think of like Leonardo da Vinci's last supper or something you think of they're all sitting at this table right with chairs or something and Jewish people in the first century did have things similar to chairs and tables as we'd have but that's not the normal way people usually ate. Usually ate in the in the Greek style where everyone would be lying around on some kind of little pillows or pads usually leaning on one Arm, usually the left hand, and you'd have these shared bowls or bowls in front of everybody. So it's like a circle, and everybody's feet are sticking out to the ends, and everybody's there talking and, and eating. Maybe if you've eaten a queen of Sheba, you don't lie down there or something, but maybe you've eaten a Moroccan food or something where you all kind of dip in and share. This is the kind of ancient style of a meal. And this is the picture of what's going on. So out on the outside of all the activity where they're all sitting there enjoying this meal, Jesus is all of a sudden at their feet, working his way along, washing their feet. We don't know with whom he started. Maybe he was at the opposite end of the circle. We don't know. But we know what happened when he got to Peter because good old Peter can't hold it in any longer. He has seen Jesus perform this lowly task And he can't keep silent. Look at what it says in verse six. So Jesus came to Simon Peter. He said to them, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And Jesus replied, do you not realize now what I'm doing, but later you will understand. It's a classic sort of Jesus move. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. So good old Peter, wholehearted, open-hearted, foot-in-mouthed all the time. But he says exactly what everybody else is thinking and feeling. He tries to object to Jesus washing his feet. And then Jesus explains something absolutely central, that this foot washing is not just Jesus doing a kind thing. It's not just him getting oxen dung off the soles of their feet. It's actually something that is a cleansing that is soul deep. In other words, Jesus is saying that what he's doing in this moment is a symbolic picture. It's really an enacted parable of why he has come into the world, what he's going to do with his own death and resurrection that's going to begin that next night. To wash, to cleanse all those who respond to him in faith, to forgive their sins, And this is one of the main ways that the Bible talks about forgiveness as being cleansed. This is what the the symbol of baptism means as well. It's It's this symbolic act that represents washing away. I don't know if you've ever considered this, but it's very brilliant how God has put together Holy Scripture. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they record Jesus last night, and they record one of the events that happened there that we celebrate each week where Jesus took bread and broke it and took wine and shared it and said, this is a new covenant I'm making with you for the forgiveness of sins. So it uses the image of brokenness and blood to describe forgiveness of sins. John tells us about another thing that happened that night, Jesus washing of the disciples' feet to teach the exact same truth. It's a different metaphor. It's a different image, the idea of being cleansed, but it teaches the exact same truth that forgiveness of sins is there. And this, friends, is absolutely foundational to the, to the Christian faith. If you're not a Christian here today, you need to understand this, that we can be forgiven of all of our sins, past, present, and future, by being united with Jesus Christ. This is the ultimate picture of love God's love for us. But we must not stop there because there's something absolutely crucial and essential to what Jesus did that night. He says, this is about cleansing, but look at how the story then concludes. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his outer clothes back on and he returned to his place. And he says, do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. now that you know these things, you'll be blessed or happy if you do them. Those are powerful and even haunting words. Because you see, it turns out that this foot washing is not just. A sign of God's cleansing love for us. That's a great truth, but it's not just that. It's also an incarnational theology lesson. And Jesus says to you and to me, as he says to the disciples, Do you understand what I've done for you? Do you? And I ask you, Do you understand what he's saying here? Jesus' willingness to engage in this lowliest, unpleasant, humbling task of foot poop cleaning is the model for us to follow. Did you see the logic of what he says? We're not greater than him, and if he can do this, then he says, this is an example for you as well. You see, this amazing foot washing incident is not only a symbol of Jesus' cleansing death for us, it's also the pattern, it's the paradigm, it's an image, a memorable image for you and me to learn to love you see the vertical love that jesus that comes from us to from jesus to us is translated into a horizontal love that we give to each other and jesus chooses this image of washing feet as a powerful idea to explain it This is the same thing he's going to say in the following chapters. If you, this afternoon, read through John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, you'll see he says the same thing. For example, just a few verses later, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. He says also, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. This is my command, love each other. And we should recall that Jesus says clearly as well, the greatest command is to love God and love others as ourselves. So here's the clear point, friends. This foot washing story is a love story. First, it's a story about God's love for us in his glad willingness to cleanse us. And it's about a love story of how you and I learn to relate to each other in self-sacrificial love. So love is a great one-word summary or message of the Bible because it really encompasses these two greatest realities, our relationship with God and our relationship with each other. So, What are we supposed to do with this? If that's so clear, which I think it is, why do we struggle to do this? Well, to to drive this home to our hearts, I wanna briefly ask and answer three quick questions. First, why do we struggle to serve in love? How do we find the power to serve in love? And what does serving in love really look like? And let me run through these first. Why do we struggle then, if this is so clear, why do we struggle to serve in this way? When I think about my life, I can think of at least a couple of reasons why I struggle to to serve and love, and I wonder if you might relate to these as well. First is, it's actually really hard to love some people. Some people are harder to love. There are always people that we naturally like and love for a variety of reasons, but there are always people who don't fit in that category as well. And if you're right now thinking of someone in that other category, they might be thinking of you that way too right now. (laughs) But you see, we're not just called to love the people that we like. We're called to love all those that God puts in our path because they're made in the image of God. In fact, as I reflected on this story One of the things that struck me very hard this week was that two of the feet that Jesus washed were none other than Judas's. The guy who he already knew had set up his betrayal, his former friend who is now about to lead him to be arrested and killed. Now, Jesus says clearly, if you go back and look at those verses, that he knew that, And that one of these disciples was not clean. That is, that he was not a recipient of the cleansing blood. But what amazes me about this story is that Jesus still humbly, knowing that, humbly washed Judas' feet. Wherever he was, when he came around to the outside of the circle, when he came to Judas's feet, he didn't reject him there. He didn't call him out. He didn't shame him. He wasn't even snooty towards him and did a less good job or something. Knowing full well what Judas was going to do, Jesus still served him in this humiliating task. Reminds me of one of the most shocking teachings of Jesus at this apex moment of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. He says, you've heard it said, that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be children of your father in heaven. The father causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than the others? Do not even the pagans do that? I don't think there's any teaching in the Bible crazier and more unnatural than what Jesus says here. That we love and serve those even who have set themselves Against us. What about you? You have an enemy at work, maybe an enemy here in church, young people, maybe an enemy at school, maybe you've got a nasty neighbor. Maybe you've got a parent who annoys you with their political posts. (laughs) Maybe you've got a kid who you haven't spoken to in a decade. Maybe you have a husband or wife who has hurt you so deeply that you don't even know how to move forward, except for with fake smiles. Maybe you got a friend who's betrayed you and it's eating you up inside. This call to legitimately love others, not just tolerate them, is hard to do. And you're going to have to figure out before God what God is calling you to do. I just want to hold forth this challenging thought this morning that God may be calling you to serve in love someone who has wronged you. Think of the impact that someone has had on you when they have loved you, especially when you fail. Who knows, but God may use you as the agent to bring life to someone who needs your love. I love what one author said Love is holy because it's like grace. The worthiness of its object is never really what matters. It's not the worthiness of the object. It's the act of serving love. Now, that's a struggle for me. I think it probably is for you, but I, I'm also aware, another reason I struggle to serve in love that may be true for you as well is that I think a lot of times our lives are, are built on the wrong dream. Our lives are built on the wrong dream. What I mean is this, so much of our life energy and our life habits are built around the great American dream. Make enough money to be comfortable, to enjoy good things, to be free to do what I want now, and especially when I'm older, to have nice things that will bring me pleasure and have security. So much of my life, and I would imagine yours as well, I find when I'm honest, is actually driven by that vision, that dream that if I work hard enough, then I can secure comfort for myself and those whom I love. But friends, when our life energy and our finances and our goals are primarily oriented towards securing life for ourselves, I have found that there's little room left for serving others. And what happens is that serving becomes this add-on that what really drives me is the American dream. And then because I've read the Bible and I care about God and care about others, I also will do some service. So we may serve occasionally. The soup kitchen on Thanksgiving or a special work day at church. But those end up being the exception, not the habit. And our lives are so often really driven by our desire for our own comfort that the, servants is, the service isn't the substance of our lives, but it's just a sprinkled on part of our lives. But Jesus is offering a different dream, a different vision, not the American dream, but how about the kingdom of God dream. That life is to be found not in seeking and hoarding our own security, but in serving others in love, reversing those things. Of course, there's nothing wrong with with saving and enjoying good things in life. I do as well. America is awesome, right? But the issue is always our hearts. What? dream is motivating you. What I found in my own heart is that the more I'm focused on securing my own pleasure and protecting my own time and future, the less I am concerned about serving others. And always remember, look at the very last verse there, The desire for happiness is not a bad thing. Look at verse 17 again. You will be blessed or you will be happy if you do what Jesus says. God is appealing to us to say, you actually, I'm telling you the way to find true flourishing. The problem is not the desire for happiness in life. The problem is that we are believing in the wrong dream. The kingdom of God vision is the normal Christian life of living our lives, pouring out ourselves into others, and that's where life is to be found. And that leads to the second question, which I will be much briefer on, and that is, then how do we find the power to serve and love? Well, I think the answer is hinted at back in verses 3 and 4. You can look at it there. It says again, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, And he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. That's a very interesting comment that John makes for us. There's a logical connection that I don't want you to miss here. It's because Jesus knew that the father had put all things under his power and that he was returning to God, that he was able to humble himself And take this lowly place, even though he deserved all the honor. Do you see the logic of this? There's something crucial here for us. How do we find the power to serve others in love? By knowing God and by knowing where we are going. You see, if we just try to serve others out of a sense of guilt or duty because you heard this sermon and you feel bad, so you're going to try to serve more people, if that's the motivation for our service, we'll never be able to sustain it and we'll actually come to resent it. But when we come to know God and when we come to understand his plans for our future, then we are free. And we are empowered to pour ourselves out in love for others. This is exactly what Jesus is gonna say in the following chapters, that we're his friends, that we're united with him and that with God the Father and through him, and that we have a future hope that is sure. And friends, that is how you find the power to sacrificially serve others. This is what frees us. It's what empowers us. If somebody, if you don't know God, and there's you have no future beyond this earth, then why would you ever sacrifice and serve anybody else? Why would you, right? You might as well just look out for yourself. But when we truly see God and realize that we are sons and daughters of the king who is bringing his kingdom to earth, then we are free to pour ourselves out We don't have to act like petulant little children who refuse to give up a dirty, old, broken toy because we can't see that the Father is about to give us everything we've desired. So let me exhort you, seek God, find joy in him because when you do, you will find the freedom. You won't be serving out a duty. You'll find the freedom to give to others. And then finally, the third question I said I wanted to ask is, what does this really look like? What does serving in love really look like? How do you know when and whom you're supposed to serve? Because you can't do everything. It's easy to get overwhelmed when you think about all the needs just in our city or county or state or world. Prisoners, people in drug addictions, homeless people, Abused wives and children, widows and widowers, malnutrition, children needing education, mental health issues. It's overwhelming. Well, a good place to start is by asking, who is in your life already? What needs do you see? Pay attention to the Spirit's leading. When you go through your day, does someone or something come to mind? Maybe that's the Holy Spirit. Maybe you'll misinterpret it. It's not the end of the world. That's okay. But listen to the proddings of the Spirit. Learn to live open to say, God, what do you want me to do today? How can I serve? Maybe if you're in a community group, talk with your community group and a group of friends about something you could commit to doing together, some habits of service you could build in for for accountability. And don't just think of serving as like these just big moments or big events. Build these habits into your life. Set aside some money. One thing that could be helpful to do is just open a separate little bank account. And if you have a little bit of extra money, put it in there and just call it your, your, your serving. Have your own, little, your own little benefactory account there. Even if it's small, remember the widow's mite. It doesn't matter how much it is. Maybe you have an envelope where you just put some money or a jar And then just say, God, lead me. How can I bless someone with this? Maybe buy some winter coats and other clothing when it's on clearance or on sale and put them in your trunk and have them there when you see someone in need. Maybe reach out to that neighbor or coworker who you've thought about, but just have never closed the loop on that. It's harder to serve when you just think of it as this big event that you're going to do as opposed to making little Choices to build habits of service into your life. I don't want to conclude today by just giving you marching orders. In fact, as we conclude this Serve Somebody series, I want to ground all of this in our remembrance of who God is. We love because God first loved us. We serve because God first served us. We pour our lives out in joy because the Father poured out his life in the Son, Jesus, to enter the world and become, and that we might become a new people through the power of the Spirit. And there's a word that can be used to sum all that up, and it is the word love. So as we go to the Lord's table today, What a great opportunity to remember what Jesus has done for us. That on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples. They shared it. He took wine, poured it out and shared it together. And he said, this is a new covenant I'm making for the forgiveness of your sins. And I'd invite you, receive that today. And then let that vertical love become horizontal as you serve others in the same way. Let me pray for us. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit SojournChurch.com East.